2: Good Sunday afternoon, and welcome to Connecting the Dots with Dan Happel. We refer to this as the thinking person's alternative to the NFL. We are going to have a great discussion today. Uh, this is a Veterans Day weekend special, and I have two very, very special guests that are going to be talking about our U.S. military and what has been happening to our country and to our military. My guests today are uh, Brad Miller. Brad Miller is a uh, former lieutenant colonel in the Army. He was a uh, West Point graduate, and he was forced out because he refused to take the jab, and he refused to make others take the jab. And I think that's an important, uh, important uh, segue into this program, because uh, Major General, uh, general uh, Joe Arbuckle is a, a former, he started out as a, P, uh, a private in the Army, uh, and he became a major general, and he did it the old-fashioned way. He came up through the ranks. He uh, went to uh, OCS after he was in the uh, uh, enlisted corps, and he did it the old-fashioned way, and part of the reason that uh, he needed to be on this program is because this is a gentleman who understands people. He understands troops. He was there... Uh, In Vietnam, he was uh, involved in so many different things. He's many, many times decorated. And I, I just, I thought, wow, this is a great way to introduce two really, really good people to each other, because I think both of you gentlemen can... Uh, learn a lot from the other, and also uh, do an awful lot of stuff down the road together. So uh, with that said, I guess I'll start. uh, Brad, uh, welcome to the program. You've never been here before. Uh, General Arbuckle has been on my program before, but uh, I want to welcome you because you went through an experience uh, where really uh, command had no right to tell you, you absolutely had to take the jab. And that—that that is a whole problem all, all by itself. But anyway, Brad, welcome to the program.
0: Well, thanks, Dan. First of all, I really appreciate being here. And of all weekends, this weekend, you know, Veterans Day weekend, so what a great time to be here in such distinguished company.
2: Well, I know that you will have a lot to uh, contribute to this conversation, but... Uh, General Arbuckle has been uh, on my program before because he is one of uh, a significant number of retired flag officers who are saying, wake up, America, and they are uh, a large group, flag officers of America. There's another group called STARS, and they are trying to make America aware that much of the retired military is not woke and they are sick to death of what's going on in this country, and they see by direct evidence that we have people now in charge of our country that are trying to take this country down. Uh, Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you again so much for being our guest.
3: Well, thanks a lot, Dan. I uh, echo Brad's comments. Uh, A really special weekend for us to be together and talk on this subject. Uh, Appreciate the opportunity.
2: Well, I think we're going we're gonna to have quite a discussion, and I guess what I'd like to do uh, first is start, Brad, with uh, maybe a little bit of your background and uh, what happened and how you got uh, into the situation where you really had no choice. You had to either leave the Army or uh, uh, take a vaccine that you absolutely had zero belief in.
0: Sure. Thank you. Um, so yeah, so I came out of West Point. I graduated in 2003. I entered the army and, um, you know, continued on in my career. And then in the summer of 2021, I was a Lieutenant Colonel at the time. I took command of a battalion within the 101st Airborne Division. And so that's it. uh, for those who, who might be familiar, that is headquartered at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Uh, so I arrived at Fort Campbell, Kentucky in June of 2021 took command of a battalion. And then about two months later, the, um, the vaccine mandate went into effect. Now I had been skeptical about the narrative surrounding COVID from day one. Now I'm not here to tell anyone that I was a genius that had everything figured out. I'm not saying that what I am saying is that I was skeptical about the narrative from day one. And so throughout 2020, as we got closer to the end of the year and people started talking about this vaccine, for me, there was, there was never a chance that I was ever going to take it. I mean, that was a non-starter. So then as we move into 2021, you know, I show up at Fort Campbell, I take command of my battalion. And from the day that I took command of my battalion, I mean, I knew that I was on borrowed time. I knew, because I knew the writing was on the wall. I knew that at any time the, uh, the mandate would go into effect, it ended up happening about, you know, two months after I took command. And then another two months later. So in October of 2021, I was relieved of command. So I was pulled out of command. I ended up doing about four and a half months total of command, uh, you know, from June to October before I was pulled out. And then in early 2022, once it was very apparent that uh, the Department of Defense was not going to walk this back, they were not going to, you know, come to their senses, as it were, um, I realized that I was painted into a corner. I was going to have to make a decision, and so, uh, so I ultimately decided to resign because I felt like, as paradoxical as it may seem, I felt that I could no longer reconcile continued service in this military right now with the oath that I had taken to the Constitution. So, I mean, I know that sounds strange to a lot of people, but I felt like in order for me to um, maintain my loyalty to the oath and what I felt as my duty to the country, and in, and in a weird way, my duty to the soldiers— um, over whom I had just been relieved, right? So technically, you know, I was no longer their commander, but um, I felt I was actually going to have to leave the military. So so, so I did it. So I, uh, I resigned from the military. My last day was September 15th of 2022, and I left with a total of 19 years, three months, and 15 days of active service. Wow.
2: Wow. That close to retirement, but that shows your dedication and your commitment to your beliefs and I wish everybody had that kind of dedication and uh you are a true oath keeper so uh god bless you my friend thank you for doing that
0: well thank you i i, I appreciate those
2: words well uh, uh joe i you, you you spent so many years you were in for what 32 33 years um and you were in it's funny because you're one of the one of the few that come up the the very long hard way. You came up as an enlisted man. You went to OCS. Uh, you were in Vietnam. You did uh, work with the Vietnamese Army. Worked with uh, you know a U.S. command as well. And uh, then you went from there to Missile Command. And uh, you've got. You've got such a a rich history, but the one thing that you have that's so much more rich than others, and I know that from talking to you in the past, is that you absolutely believe in your oath of office, uh, the oath you swore uh, to uphold, protect, and defend the Constitution, and you understand what that really means, and there's an awful lot of people that don't. Uh, Anyway, that's the part that makes you special and it's why you need to be uh, talking to people today on Veterans Day weekend.
3: Well, thank you for the kind words there, Dan. Uh, A couple of points uh, before I get into uh, kind of of what you raised right there. First, uh, I want to uh, thank all the veterans and their families uh, that have served over this weekend. It's a tremendous sacrifice, as all of us know. Um, those sacrifices are made in many, many ways. Uh, each case is different. Sometimes it's blood, sometimes it's limbs, sometimes it's mental problems. Uh, but the families, for those that are married, and most are, uh, there's always sacrifices because of the, the, the time, the duties, and the separations. I mean, during this uh, global war on terror, that 22 years of uh, some of our NCOs and officers uh, deployed downrange. three four five times separated from family and kids that's a tremendous sacrifice and it causes all kinds of issues a lot of it has to do with divorce and so forth so i just want to thank everybody that has served for those sacrifices we can't say enough about that the next thing i want to say is tapping into what you mentioned about uh, what brad did Uh, brad uh uh, you know, there's two kinds of courage you know, we we learn about in the military. One's physical courage. That's to face fire in combat and that sort of thing. But uh, tougher courage is moral courage. And uh, that's, that's what you displayed. You stood for your principles, uh, doing the right thing. You maintained your integrity. And in the process, you sacrificed a bunch. So I just want to commend you for that.
0: Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate
3: that, General. Yes. Absolutely. Um, And and by the way, I'd like to talk to you more when this is over offline sometime next week and and establish a relationship that Dan mentioned earlier. Um, Regarding my career, Dan, and uh, the oath, you know, the oath never goes away for any of us that served. It doesn't have to be 30 years. It can be three years. It can be whatever amount of years. You take an oath and it sticks with us And uh, that's really why I'm involved right now with what I do as a volunteer in these organizations because of that oath. Uh, You mentioned coming in the Army as a private. Yeah, I graduated from college here in Colorado in uh, 68. And that was the peak of the Vietnam War and the draft was looming. And as soon as we graduated from college, of course, we lost our student deferments in those days. I didn't plan to come in the Army. That was not in the cards for me, but that is what happened um draft board said you've got a few weeks to go you better shop around and get the best you can So I, I came in the army um as far as you know coming up through the ranks credit goes to all those people that i served with you know this is a team effort as we all understand in the military and nobody does anything by themselves and uh, so you know i served with a lot of great people uh, a lot of work for me i worked for a lot of great people a lot of uh you know, contemporaries and you know, it's just the way it goes, and I was blessed to be able to command at every rank I held from lieutenant on up because um, that's kind of that's what I enjoyed. Frankly, I like to be with soldiers and work with soldiers and and uh, kind of be there on the ground floor with them. Um, I want to talk, if I can, a little bit about Stars Dan, this group uh, stand together against racism and radicalism in the services. Uh, that was formed. It's again, it's a it's a group of volunteers, primarily senior officers uh, that, uh, that run the organization uh, as a nonprofit. But it was formed about three years ago when most of them are Air Force Academy graduates because we live here in the Springs. They saw that the uh, football coach at the Academy was playing a Black Lives Matter tape uh, on multiple occasions with chanting and cheering and kind of rousing up the football team over that. And they knew that was wrong and so they, they got engaged with the superintendent of the Air Force Academy at the time and said, you know, that, that's got to stop. That's not what we're about here. And they worked at for a period of months and finally got it stopped. But then they started digging deeper and deeper into what was going on in our military. And the uh, stars evolved. And I was asked to join uh, by a good friend of mine, a three-star retired Air Force general Rod Bishop, who is the chairman of the board, and he asked me to advise. Now, STARS, and this is going to get to what you're uh, talking about and the reason you resigned, Brad, and that is STARS had two strategic objectives a year ago. One was to uh, get rid of the vaccine mandate within the Department of Defense and also seek remedies for those harmed by it. Now, we worked that very hard along with other organizations uh, like uh, the Center for Military Readiness, Elaine Donnelly, uh, with Alan West and his group committee to support and defend. And Lori Rome has got, got another great organization, uh, all, all pushing in the same direction using congressional members and contacts, uh, press releases, interviews, in other words, bringing visibility to the subject. And we have a great uh, general counsel, another Air Force Academy graduate that was involved in legal suits against the Department of Defense for the. Uh, Uh, what turned out to be an illegal vaccine, it's under emergency use only, as we know. And so we worked this thing on a lot of different fronts, and as you know, finally, language went into the National Defense Authorization Act uh, last year that caused the Secretary of Defense, as Brad mentioned, to revoke that uh, mandate. Now still hanging out there are remedies, uh, where there doesn't seem to be a big appetite uh, congressionally at this point for remedies for those armed. we're still working that. The second major strategic goal we have is getting rid of CRT, critical race theory, and its spinoff, which is DEI, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion in, in the Department of Defense. And We've been working that very hard also this year, uh, and, and we're pleased that uh, the language coming out of the House to, to do that was uh, quite strong, uh, but it's gone into committee at this point and this, of uh, course, involved with the Senate there, it will be watered down because the Senate doesn't appear to have any appetite to get rid of DEI out of the Department of Defense. And even if they did, if it went to the president, he's already said something about uh, vetoing any bill in the NDAA that got rid of DEI or even the, uh, the um, uh, policy the DOD has to uh, fund abortions, travel for abortions, that is. So anyway, that's our two strategic goals as a background in what we're doing with STARS. And it's a great group of volunteers. There's about eh, 3,200 uh, people that are on our, our our newsletter, our mailing list that follow us and support our actions. So uh, that's where we're at.
2: Well, uh, sir, I think the uh, uh, the time is now. Uh, you know, we kind of have that uh, little uh, back and forth, uh, email back and forth on this. But I think we reached the tipping point just about the time that Brad really was forced to retire or, you know, to leave the service. I wish it was retire, leave the service because <clears throat> I think people have had a gutful of this stuff. And even if, uh, let's just say that, old oh, Biden does, uh veto any good positive legislation that comes out of this stuff. That's almost a win-win anyway, because people are starting to realize just exactly what a bunch of thugs we have in control of our country right now. And, And the quality of leadership that we have, frankly, if you'd have told me this when I was a young man, I, I wouldn't have believed it in a million years. I cannot believe how far this country's gone down the wrong road. And it's time for us, to, the adults, to turn this ship around and bring us back on a course that uh, the country was designed to do under our founding fathers.
3: Oh, absolutely. I'm uh, picking up a similar sensing Um Hopefully, people are getting fed up with it. enough is enough, basically. Uh, but as we know, this has been a, a long-term plan strategy to get us to where we are today. And it goes back to, uh, you and I've talked about this before, even in 1930, 32, 33, a bunch of Marxists came over from Germany, and established the uh, Frankfurt School at the Columbia Teachers College. And their objective was to spread this Marxist ideology throughout our, our education system, primarily. And then that uh, got accelerated in the 1960s by a guy named Herbert Marcuse, and he was part of that group that came over in 1934. Mm -hmm. And he was um, uh, an intellectual, and he pushed basically the Marxist theme, which is to basically divide people, as we know, into different groups and pit them against each other, one being the oppressors and the other group oppressed, primarily along the racial lines. And that's the way it's playing out today. However, Within this DEI, they've also added other identity groups that mean gender, um, ethnic background, uh, sex orientation, and so forth. Any way to put people into different groups and get them working against each other, and that's what we're seeing playing out. Mm-hmm. And of course, they targeted our major institutions within the United States in the 1960s to try to infiltrate them with that thinking. And at the top of the list was again the education system, which they unfortunately. Uh, taking control of. We can see that right now with the demonstrations in the streets, uh, college kids out there uh, doing stuff that they have no idea what they're doing. Also, they targeted the, uh, the media, the mainstream media, and now social media, which is even more powerful. And to make that point, how powerful it is, I like to ask the rhetorical question, would the Biden administration be in charge right now, to the White House, or leftists in congress if it were not for the media mm-hmm. the answer is obvious of course no, not weren't. yeah and so that just demonstrates the power of the media and that's been captured pretty much and then they went after the entertainment industry because of the way that shapes young minds uh, the political system of course obviously uh, the legal system which uh, you know we've pretty much lost the rule of law in our country right now in my opinion so they've uh that's been uh, taken uh, now, corporate America uh, is is bowing down to wokeness, as we well know, and finally, the last institution, which is the one that is so hard for us to accept, is the military. And uh, so that's kind of a background of where we're at right there today. It's uh, it's tragic, and uh, I think well, first of all, how do you turn it around? Well, in uh, let's see, in June of uh, 2021. Flag Officers for America, we were asked the question by a bunch of citizens, and so we put out a citizen action plan. It's a simple one-pager, and basically it talks about doing it from the grassroots at the citizen level. Start with your education system, your board of education. We see a lot of good things happening across the nation in that regard today. There's a pushback. And also get involved in local politics. Run for office, run for mayor, run for a city council, run for a county commissioner job, or anything that you can to have an influence. And uh, get involved with your local media to kind of spread the truth out there. So we put that out and it's had some value. But the biggest thing to turn this thing around, in my opinion, is going to require a change of leadership at the top. Because all of this is being forced from the presidential level. And of course, congressionally too, down through all of our federal uh, agencies and uh, so forth. And that's why it's in the Department of Defense right now.
2: Well, and and I know for a fact that you uh, feel very much like I do, that uh, this is really uh, Obama's third term. Uh, Biden is a, a, you know, he's a sock puppet. I mean, he doesn't have the intelligence, the sense right now to uh, uh, even keep a complete uh uh, sentence to uh, complete a complete sentence. He's just a mess. And, uh, we know that that's a reason that Obama stayed in DC and only lives about a mile or a mile and a quarter from the white house. And it's, uh, he's serving his third term, whether we like it or not. Incidentally, uh, thumper, my producer, uh, is a uh, former crew chief for, uh, the blue angels and uh he, he's a navy man so but uh i just thought i'd mention that everybody on this uh program right now is uh uh have served in the military so um uh, anyway brad i want to bring you back into the discussion because you're probably the closest you saw a lot of these uh, insane policies starting to be implemented in a big way your last few years. And I, I kind of want all of your insight into how this whole thing started to play out and how it became as, as bad as it is.
0: I, I tell you, so it, it has, it's been a gradual approach. You know, when we talk about, um, kind of this this Fabian socialism model i mean it's going to be a gradual approach but i will tell you i feel like it's it's exponentially increased though in the in the speed with which it has taken greater hold just recently i mean i've only been out of the army for 14 months and just when i look at what's going on in the army since the day that i left i feel like things have been on hyperdrive so um and i'll tell you why i think that is i do think and there are many people who who also agree with this is that um, one of the byproducts of the, uh, the VAX mandate is you got rid of a lot of people that were going to stand up and resist. Now they happen to stand up and resist about the VAX mandate, but they would have, stood they would have stood up as well to other measures deemed unconstitutional or that they felt that were equally unlawful or equally immoral, et cetera. But once you get, uh, kind of that cadre of individuals out, well, those are your individuals that would have stood up and resisted other things. And so I, I again, I feel like, um, for as uh, as destructive as General Milley was, things are not gonna get any better with the with the the new chairman. I mean, when you look at the direction in which they're headed, I mean, they've put in their man for the job that is gonna continue to go unless we decide that we're, you know, we're not gonna have it. Um, another thing that is happening is I, I tell you a great example of kind of where we've gotten just recently Um, maybe within the past two weeks, there was some guidance that came out, I believe from the air force that um, there was guidance that they published on how to properly create your signature block, including the use of your pronouns. So how to include that in your signature block so that everyone you're in email correspondence with knows your pronouns. I mean, this is, this guidance is now going out in official channels. I mean, this is where we're at right now. So you got to ask yourself, how did we get here, and how are we still here? Because the 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 truth of the matter is, there are there are um, there are I would say one of the greatest threats that we have to our military right now is what I call moral injury. You know, and and if you go to the um, the Department of the VA website um, under their PTSD tab, they actually do have an entry for moral injury. So what's moral injury? Moral injury is what you feel when you act in a way that is in with your own moral code or when you see someone else do that or when you're part of an organization that begins to operate against the organization's stated moral code. Now, we all know that the military for a long time has had a very specific ethos. And that ethos has been suffused with a very clear and directly taught system of virtues and values. You know, speaking um, uh, specific to the army, we have what are called the army values. But then you look at the conduct of the army and DOD as a whole the last couple of years, and you have to ask yourself, well, what senior leaders, those who have purportedly um, are believers in these army values, you know, in, in the case of the army, I mean, they're, but they're violating all of them right now and have been the last couple of years. So then what happens is you get members, whether it's your, um, whether it's your, uh, your junior service members or whether it's your, uh, your non-commissioned officers or your petty officers, or whether it's your, your junior to mid-grade officers, but you got a lot of individuals who are still in the military and maybe they fought the mandate, but maybe through ongoing litigation, they were able to kind of stall to the point where the, um, the, uh, the NDAA forced DOD to uh, rescind the um, the mandate. And so therefore you got a lot of people that are still in, but I would say there's pervasive moral injury that a lot of these individuals are suffering where they, they no longer trust their local unit leadership and they no longer trust the uh, senior Pentagon leadership because they don't trust these individuals to do what's right, to follow the law, you, you know, make good on their oath to the constitution or look out for the rights and the health freedom or, or the readiness of, uh, of their subordinates. And, and I, and I'll just say kind of, uh, to close out this point, well, what does moral injury look like? Well, it looks like a couple of things. One, it can manifest itself as disgust. So we've all felt that throughout our lives when we do something that we know is wrong. Okay. We, we first feel guilt because of what we did. And then we may even in a, in a more extreme case, feel disgust, towards ourselves as a person. Now I'm not here to say that's healthy. In fact, it's not. But um, whereas guilt is oriented towards the action that you performed, disgust is oriented towards the actor, you know, or, or oneself. If we're talking about an action that, you know, one is committed and then they feel bad about, but when you look at being part of an organization or when you look at the actions of others, it's the same thing. You can have people in the military who feel disgust towards, they're uh, they're direct leaders, or they feel disgust towards the uh, the senior leaders of the Pentagon. And so I would ask a question: Well, how how can we tell ourselves that we have a strategic fighting force when we have people right now who feel some disgust at putting on the uniform? Not because they feel disgust by wearing the American flag, but they feel disgust at putting on a uniform that represents an institution that they may feel no longer has their best interest at heart. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a, a great point. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you think about it, uh, that that has been happening for really, uh, with the exception of when Trump was uh, uh, commander in chief, that's been happening for, uh, what, uh, 10, 12 years. You know, it is embedded now in our military, that disgust, that uh, moral injury that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, and, and, and I tell you, this is one of those things that's kind of, um, you know, whether you, you want to refer to it as an intangible or um, or something that is invisible, but that does not mean that it is not real and that it is not being perceptibly felt by many of our members that are still in uniform or those who have recently departed for whatever reason. You know, maybe they were maybe they were separated against their will or maybe they're like me where technically, you know, I got backed into a corner, but I, I chose to to resign. There are a lot of people like me out there too. And then you also have individuals that are still in, but they're but but I will tell you, their uh their spouses may be very unhappy with the military. Their children or their parents, depending on the age of the service member, may be very unhappy with um the way that their loved one has been treated. So moral injury, uh, I would say is is something that is being felt in the wider military community meaning not just those who are wearing the uniform but their families or uh, or vets who have recently left or just the citizenry that is looking at the way the military has been has been uh, treated
2: well and now we have uh, groups like the FBI and the Department of Justice that are identifying veterans <laughs> as a part of the domestic terrorism yep. Problem. I mean this you you can't make this stuff up. We know what we're fighting here right now we're fighting pure evil and uh, it's time for America to stand up. Joel you you listen now uh, with, with Brad's comments on that that is something that you didn't suffer, when you were uh, active uh, service in in the military, active duty in military, that is a fairly new thing. I mean, I I know there was a little a little tiny bit of that probably for a long time, but not like there is today. This is incredible how it's going to impact our military readiness.
3: That's correct. I I didn't suffer anywhere near, near like it is today. Uh, what we might call political correctness uh started uh, appearing in my opinion in the early 90s when uh, clinton ran for office under the uh peace dividend mantra where he used the money uh to downsize the department of defense by oh, at least 35 percent like in the army we went from just as a comparison 18 active divisions at the time uh, down to 10. now that's a tremendous cut and we all knew at the time, that was a wrong thing to do because we would be paying for that drastic cut in, in blood and treasure in the future when the future wars uh, occurred, and that's exactly what happened in the, the war on, um, on terror. We had a very small force and that generated the requirement then for people to deploy back into the combat zone much, much faster than would have happened if we had a larger force that we needed. So that was just an example of a bad political decision anyway. I retired at the end of 2000, and one of the reasons that I decided to retire was I was had been in the Pentagon, i come out of a two-star command, and I was seeing, in my opinion, too much acceptance of political agendas <clears throat> being forced into the military and senior military leaders not objecting to them. Okay, fast forward to Obama 2008, and this political correctness uh, was rapidly accelerated, as we know, during his, his two terms. And uh, now under Biden, it's it's on steroids. And DEI is one of those things. Another is, of course, uh, pushing this climate change into the military. Mm-hmm. That's a political agenda, calling it a, a national security threat for the Department of Defense. Now, I I have a hard time with that. I don't think they can define that threat, but it's there, and we're spending time on it and resources on it. Um, I'd like to tap into what Brad said there, which was an excellent rundown about Army values. The Army also has something called the uh, Warrior Ethos, which is a representation of the Army values. It's a very simple thing; it's four points that really encapsulates, I think, everything that service above self is about. And the first one is, uh, I will always place the mission first. And what that means is. If, uh, if I've got to get injured or die to get the mission done, I will do that under the right circumstances. Always place the mission first. But next is I will never accept defeat. Next is I will never quit. And last is I will never leave a fallen uh, battle buddy on the, on the battlefield. And those things are being uh, violated today, I believe, because of the value shift that Brad mentioned. And uh, I've been saying in our Flag Officers for America letter and also more recently in our STARS work that one of the biggest casualties that's going to come out of this DEI infusion into the military is uh, the harm it's doing to our, our warrior ethos, those four points. You know, our military has always until now been uh, with a kind of a battle motto that is one team, one fight. We've always looked at ourselves as a team, a team of teams, actually. As we know, the teams act, start with two soldiers in a foxhole. They go up to the squad level and all the way up to the top of uh, joint operations. That's being a road or challenge right now with DEI as it pits soldiers against each other and military members against each other based on race or gender or whatever identity group they want to use. And so that uh, causes erosion to trust and confidence in each other. And that's one of the key elements of one team in one fight. You've got to have total trust and confidence in the person that's on your left, right, front, and rear. And we never want to get in a situation where you got two people in a foxhole, one's black, one's white, and they're starting to wonder, well, if I get hit, is that guy next to me or that gal next to me going to risk their life to help me? We never want to get there. That's kind of the ultimate worst case in this scenario. Another part of the one team, one type fight is a total focus on on the mission, a common purpose, a common direction for everybody. And uh, this this business about um, the president recently at a speech I think Howard about two months ago, saying that the biggest domestic threat, a terrorist threat we have, is white supremacy. I just think what that does to the, the What message does that send down through the ranks uh, about trust and confidence in each other and up and down the chain of command? So, again, I'm just tapping into what Brad said on values and putting it into the warrior ethos um, area because we can't afford to have that lost. We've got to have total trust and confidence in each other for everything, for our very lives, up and down.
2: Well, I, I'm going to bring something up, too. I, you, you have, in Vietnam, that was a, a perfect example of how, uh, you know, after the 50s and, you know, some of the problems with racism in, uh, in the schools and stuff like that, uh, even a little bit of it uh, carried over in, into World War II, into the fighting units, because there was still segregation. But in Vietnam everybody I didn't I don't care if you were black or white or green. you, you uh, knew that you were in a unit to uh, cover each other and it was a uh, it was probably the best time in our history to bring all the different groups together uh, in a common cause. Now, we had the draft then and there was a lot of crap going on with drugs and some of this other nonsense. But the truth is is that uh, racism uh, had all but uh, gone away during Vietnam, at least that was certainly my perception.
3: Well, it varied with the type of unit, Dan. uh, You know, combat units and and, I was there at the tail end of it as an infantry advisor I was not with a US unit. I was out there with a, uh, a few other advisors in the South Vietnamese. But I know for certain that the combat units in Vietnam, when they were there, uh, as you say, race was not an issue because they had to depend upon each other for their lives. But as you got back more toward the rear, with a lot more time on their hands, <clears throat> and uh, there wasn't the direct threat of combat, there were racial problems. Uh, now, fast forward after Vietnam, the draft is over, and uh, the draftees uh, came out of the Army, and we did, went through a tremendous downsizing of the Army, reduction force, it started to gradually change. But I still saw racism, race problems in the Army when I commanded a company in 2nd uh, Army Division in 1975. But as we got more forward to the 1980s, Then that started to flush itself out. It was just a reflection of society, Dan. You know, recall in the 60s, we had terrible race riots in Mm -hmm. many major cities in the United States, and so that's what carried on into the military in the 60s and early 70s there. But in the 80s, the Army set out to um, redefine itself along the lines of uh, task, condition, and standard, become a professional fighting force. Training and doctorate command was established and we started to get into skill identification tests where we had to uh, prove proficiency all the way down from basically the E-4E-5 level all the way up to the unit level. So we got readiness peaked out at, the, at pretty much about 1990 when the Gulf War hit. That was a great demonstration of a professional military force in the field. But that was our that was our peak, I think, Dan, hmm. was the Gulf War. And we came home from that, and as I mentioned earlier, then Clinton decided to uh, tap into what he called the peace and, and and greatly reduce our military. So that's kind of a, my perception every point on race. Uh, yeah, it was there in, in Vietnam, but it depended on the unit. And yeah. if we were just part of the society.
2: Well, you know, with what I see today happening and Brad, I want you to uh, chime in on this. But what I see happening today is just like both of you talked about, they're trying to find any differences in every single uh, person so that they can use those differences to divide and separate us. And I've, I've never seen anything like it. I call it slicing and dicing society. That's really what we've got going on today. They are trying to point out every single difference so they can get people to not trust each other, not work together, and uh, to to follow along with what they're trying to feed us. And I'm telling you, I think it's absolutely, at this point, it's absolutely wrong. And I think that Americans are finally starting to wake up and realize, wait a minute, Obama was the great... Uh, He he was going to bring unity to the country and all this crap, and all he did was try to divide and separate as many people as he possibly could. I've never seen anybody that was as as destructive to uh, good race relations as Obama, and I I don't think I've seen anybody better at uh, solving some of those issues than uh, Donald Trump was. Um, I mean, I think he did a lot of really positive things in that regard. Uh, Brad, um, weigh in, please.
0: So, um, as you were as you were stating that about the so, first of all, what I think they've done, and they've done it as a very deliberate tactic. What they have basically fetishized diversity. So, if you think about the slogan "Out of many, one," well, what they have done that done is they've inverted that: "Out of one, many." So now take a military, which is supposed to pride itself on unity. Now, of course, you have diverse members that are part of the military. I mean, look at the, look at the makeup of our, of our nation. The military is supposed to focus on unity, you know, despite the differences of people who come from different regions of the United States, uh, different ethnic backgrounds, uh, what, whatever different religions, whatever it may be, you focus on the unity but what they've done or in other words you kind of go back to that slogan out of many one but when you invert that you take the the unity that should exist in the relationship and to use your terminology Dan you slice and dice it so what they've done is they've gone you know in the opposite direction out of one we're going to fragment it we're going to factionalize it into many segments and where possible we're going to exploit those differences to try and create disunity and if we can, so much friction to where true unity either cannot be achieved or can only be achieved uh, with great difficulty.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, you saw it happening. I'd, I'd, li- I'd like to have you just kind of go through uh, the last uh, last years after, well, what happened during Obama's years? You were there. You saw a lot of this. You saw also what happened during Trump's time. And then you saw what happened after Trump's time. Give us kind of a a real good picture book of uh, the progression that you saw during uh, the end of the Bush years into the Obama years and then the Trump years.
0: Yeah. So I came in, you know, if you think about it, um, so... I was a cadet at West point when nine 11 happened. So to kind of set the timeline there, I was in my third year. Now, interestingly enough, for those who know where West point is located, it's only about 50 miles North of New York city, which means I was, you know, all things told kind of a stone's throw away from uh, where that had all happened. But I I had just started my junior year at West point. So when I graduate in, uh, in the summer of 2003 and I'm entering the army you know, we're we're a year and a half, almost two years into combat operations in Afghanistan, and then Iraq has just kicked off. So that's kind of the army that I enter to, at least looking at it through the perspective of what's going on in terms of uh, combat operations. And so I, I can tell you that at least in that regard, um, from 9-11 to 9-12, I mean, West Point changed, like, dramatically overnight, just from... I would say the uh, the reality now of what it meant to be a cadet at the military academy, because we all intuitively knew uh, this is a big deal. And now people that we know that are a year, two years, three years ahead of us that we have known from the academy, you know, these guys are getting ready to deploy. So that's kind of what was happening to me in my formative years of instruction as a cadet. And then right when I entered the army. So you know, as a Lieutenant, you know, when I'm a platoon leader, so this is probably 2004 or so. Um, and we've got units around us that are getting ready to deploy, or they're coming back from deployments. Um, in 2005, you know, I'm in a unit that's preparing to deploy. I deployed for the first time in, uh, in early 2006. So um, in terms of a lot of what was happening politically, I always knew that there was an undercurrent there of um, destructive tendencies that I did not necessarily like and that things were being done politically that I felt like were undercutting the military. But I will tell you at the ground level, you could kind of you could kind of feel a little bit insulated from that. Now you're not totally insulated, but as a lieutenant or a very junior captain, you know, if you're getting ready to deploy or if you're deployed, you are worried about what your guys are doing and you're on the line. And to some degree, you can kind of not focus a whole lot on that, even though you certainly hear, I mean, you hear what's going on in the news and you hear what people are saying or this or that. And you kind of get a sense as to whether or not at the political levels, you feel like you are or are not being supported in a way, you know? And and again, supporting the troops does not necessarily mean that that means that we agree with sending the troops everywhere on every single, you know, unconstitutional bit of adventurism that we can think of. That's not necessarily (laughs) what supporting the troops means, but what it does mean is when troops are engaged, because there's no member of the military that has, you know, decided to send himself there. And that's not, that's not how it works. Right. Um, you know, Lieutenant Miller, yeah. Captain Miller was not a, was not a, was not a policymaker when he was on the, you know, his first deployment or whatever, but, um, but again, you can kind of feel just whether you are or are not being uh, supported at the uh, at that level. Um, but at the same time, and at the ground level, we kind of spoke about this before, and and General Arbuckle mentioned this before with your um, with your guys on the line that when they're looking to the left and the right, that's kind of what they care about. You know, who who are my teammates? Who are my squad mates? Who are my platoon mates? Can I trust them? Are we well trained? Do we trust our leaders? And, you know, for a guy who's in combat operations on the ground, when he thinks about his leadership, he's thinking about his squad leader, his platoon sergeant, his platoon leader, you know, maybe the first sergeant and the the, the company commander. That's kind of who he thinks about on a daily basis as his as his leadership. So when we kind of look throughout the remainder of my career, right, and then we get towards the, the the tail end of my career, and as I get a little bit older, right, um, and, and rise up a little bit in the ranks. Um, you can definitely tell. I mean, I mean, especially by the time we get to uh, to to the time period in which I'm leaving the military, you can tell, or at least I could, that uh, there was a concerted effort to destroy the military, and that it was bigger than the military. But in my mind, my opinion, um, there were senior leaders of the military that I think were you know in on the plan. I don't see how they could not have been. So I think you got. A lot of people that are cowards, certainly true, but I think you certainly have some others that were, were in on the plan to destroy the military. And I will tell you why I think that is. Um, and this goes back to what General Arbuckle uh, stated earlier with the various institutions of the nation. But uh, America has always prided itself on its military for for whatever reason even if you want to look at our founding and you want to think about how we are a nation that was born of war. And I think for Americans, that has been a, um, a sense of pride. You know, when you look at George Washington, not just the first president, not just the the, the father of our country, but it was he who led the nation when, uh, you know, the deck was stacked against him in every single way. Right. So this is the way in which our nation came into existence and has come to define itself, and I think Americans take a lot of pride in that, uh, which which I think is great. As long as our military is being used correctly, then I think that's great. I think that is that is positive. But because our military has long been the bastion of conservative principles, you know the uh, the oath to the Constitution, um, the defenders of the founding principles that the republic is predicated upon or the founding of the republic is predicated upon, then if you want to destroy the nation, you are going to have to go after the strength of the military. And when we talk about the strength of the military, it's not just military hardware. Yeah, I mean, of course, that's part of it, but it's not just that. It's not just our intelligence collection um, architecture, which is you know very high tech, but it is something deeper, something that resides in the heart of your service members. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what you're talking about is um, back in, uh, let's say, 1990, uh, mid-80s, our U.S. military had an approval rating by the general public. It was almost 100%. I mean, it was up in the high 90s uh, in trust. The people trusted our military. They trusted that. They now look at where those figures are, and they've changed. And not only that, but Congress has got like a 12% approval rating. Uh, The president has uh, something like a 18% approval rating. I mean, this is what's happening. They're destroying all these important institutions. And General Arbuckle talked about how we have to maintain those important institutions if we're going to survive as a country. That's how they're doing it. They're taking apart all the things that had credibility that made America great.
3: Right. Uh, you want me to jump in on that,
2: David? I Please do. Please do. I, when uh, I stop talking, you guys are welcome to jump in.
3: <laughs> all right. Yeah, um, you know, if you take this all the way up to the top, that's there is an ultimate objective there to basically fundamentally change America, as we've heard before from someplace.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And uh, there's a big agenda from uh, the people that are pushing this DEI and all these other things, social programs, and that is to, uh, I think, Head toward this one-world government business, and uh, the institutions have to come along with that. But coming back to the military, um, but I've seen no evidence that senior leaders want to destroy it. What I have seen is that they're buying into the social reengineering of the military, which has, as a consequence, taking down the institutions or harming institutions. I think that uh, many of them believe that uh, the military can be more from a racially standpoint and any other identity group standpoint, more diverse and inclusive and include this equity idea. So let me dive into that a little bit because Dan, you like to connect some dots here and maybe I can tie a couple together. <clears throat> First of all, the military has probably been the most uh, inclusive and diverse institution our country's ever seen. As an example, I did a comparison recently looking at the 2020 census and there's about 12% of our population is black. In the Department of Defense active duty, it's 17%. That's a 42% increase just in blacks in the, in the Department of Defense in general. The same thing holds true for all minorities when you put them together and include Hispanics and uh, Latinos and blacks and Asians and on and on. Uh, that's about forty-three percent, according to the census, in the population, somewhere around forty-seven to forty-nine, in Department of Defense. That's real diverse and inclusive, I would say. About fifty-eight percent, as I recall, whites in the population at large, and fifty-two percent in DOD. Less, fewer whites in DOD because there's more minorities. Now you have to ask yourself the question: Why is that? Why are there more minorities in Department of Defense than in the general population when we have a volunteer and military? Why? Well, the answer is simple. They see it as a place for them to get ahead, where they're going to be treated with equal opportunity for all, not based upon their identity or uh, or, or gender or skin color or whatever else, because that's been the way our military has been in the past for for decades. We've we've operated based upon equal opportunity, uh, regardless of uh, what your background is. Everybody has a chance to excel. And when you have equal opportunity, that generates. Comp- Competition. Let's take a PT test. Let's say a platoon leader says, All right, or company commander, anybody gets 300 or more on the PT test, you can have the rest of the afternoon off. All of a sudden, there's competition. That's the way it works. And so, the other part that's really critical that goes with equal opportunity that we've had, and it's been battle tested for decades in our military, is the meritocracy. Meritocracy basically says you're, you're evaluated based upon your merit, your personal merit. And that has three components. One is the content of your character, uh, referencing Martin Luther King there, obviously, Mm -hmm. right on. Add to that your duty performance, and then third, your potential for future advancement. That's how we treat people or have treated people in the military in the past. But along comes DEI, and they're saying, well, no, you've got to have what they don't call quotas, but they really are, targets or certain numbers of uh, blacks or females or whatever else in certain areas. And uh, and that's based upon the logic that, Connecting the Dot, that we have oppressors and oppressed. And and these groups, these identity groups have been oppressed, therefore uh, there's some special privileges that go with it because there is a, a mentality created that they're owed something because they have been oppressed. And so we see this happening right now. We see ca- things coming out of the Department of Defense that say, actually, the Air Force, that said, well, we've got 67%, uh, no, correction, some 80% of pilots are that are white, we want to give them 60%. Well, that's not meritocracy. That's basically uh, putting people into a personnel situation based upon their skin color or gender. Uh, meritocracy wins wars. And that's proven in... Uh, I like to use an example in pro sports. If you take a look at pro sports, um, basketball and football, you'll see that there's about 70 to 74% of the players on the field are black. And if you look on the other hand at the National Hockey League, about 94% are white. Well, why is that? Well, the answer is the mission of those sports teams is to win games, win games. and games. So the coach puts the best possible players on the field in order to accomplish the mission. Well, if that works in pro sports and it does for any sports team, actually, why is that model not no longer good for our military? Why can we not put the best people in charge in leadership positions in the military as we've done in the past, instead of based upon some identity group or the best ones to fly, the best ones to be doctors, or whatever else? Uh, so there's a great hypocrisy here between what's going on with this DEI ideology and how it's applied to military versus the real world. And the danger is, of course, if we don't use meritocracy with
2: I think we got a lockup. I'm still with you. Okay, good. Um Joe, I think Joe's uh internet locked up for him. Yeah, um,
0: uh, yeah, his 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 his
3: internet locked up.
2: Okay. Well we'll we'll wait and as soon as as soon as he comes back on, we'll
3: I, I uh, think get he's him gonna- back on. Yeah, I think he's going to go out and come back in and uh,
2: reboot. Yeah, reboot. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, well, um, Brad, let's talk about uh, you mentioned General Milley. <laughs> uh, yeah. What he did with uh, Donald Trump, uh, talking about how he was going to approach uh, the Chinese communist Chinese leadership uh, and avoid anything that Trump. Uh, told him to do um, because he considered uh, Trump a, a direct threat uh, to uh, the United States. This is absolutely insane. This is the uh, craziest thing I've ever heard. Uh, wh- what's your what's your feedback on that?
0: Yeah, um, yeah, I'll tell you something that's interesting real quick, and then I'll answer your question. So um, when I was a brand-new lieutenant, and I mean, brand new, I showed up to my first duty station in, uh, which is at Fort Drum, New York, the 10th mountain division, been there. my division commander, which would have been a two-star general was, um, then major general Lloyd Austin, you know, now the, uh, now the secretary of defense, my brigade commander was then Colonel Mark Milley. So, I mean, it's just, you know, now, you know, 20 years later. And uh, one of them is the secretary of defense. The other is the, the, the recently retired uh, chairman of the joint chiefs. And I'm, you know, a resigned former lieutenant colonel from the army. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, so they, they didn't know me then. I mean, I had no interactions with, them. I mean, I was a brand new second lieutenant, but that is just kind of uh, kind of funny that I was part of their unit, you know, 20 years ago. But um, so in the military, everyone has a boss. And even if you are the senior uh, uniformed service member, which would be, you know, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, you still have a boss. And so, um, yeah, y- y- you can't have military leaders going against the uh, the policies of the president of the United States. I mean, it's just, it is what it is. and And when you, so one, it's a huge problem that you would do that. But two, the fact that by making a statement publicly that you would have done that, or that you might in the future do that, then you are also showcasing to the public, one, there's a huge rift between senior military leaders and the commander in chief. But two, there is such a rift that senior military leaders would go behind the president's back just because they disagree with his policies. Whereas in a functioning republic, you should have a military that falls in line with the policies that are coming from the commander in chief and from the, uh, the, the administration in general. Now, the interesting point there, of course, is that, um, and I do just want to kind of make this point as well. When we look at the military, a lot of people who have never served and, and, and sadly, and it boggles my mind, even some who have served, they want to say things like when you're in the military, you follow orders. You know, you, you received an order, you got to follow orders. You were in the military. You should have known that. And if you don't know that, well, then it's a good thing that you're out. Um, and I and I do think sometimes we need to look at that with a little bit of nuance. So when it comes to following orders in the military, uh, yeah, you are expected to follow orders. That that is true. I mean, the the military is a regimented institution for a reason because of the nature of its mission. You know, everybody, everybody understands that. And to some degree, even a even a young 17 or 18 year old when they're first talking to a recruiter you know kind of understands that so um yes you are expected to follow orders and yes you are even expected to follow orders that you do not like or do not agree with or in in reality that you may even find tactically or operationally unsound now that does not mean necessarily that you don't have um the ability or even the obligation to go to your superior who issued that order and explain why you perhaps disagree. And maybe your superior hears you out and maybe agrees with you or, or maybe he doesn't. And he just says, Hey, listen, I understand, but I need you to follow this order. And then you, you reach what's kind of typically you know called the the salute point where you're like, okay, I got it. I I have, I have made my discontent known. You're still giving me the same order. I don't necessarily agree with it. But it is legal and lawful. Therefore, I I am going to go in uh, and carry it out. Right. Um, But all of that changes when you are talking about an order that on its face at least appears to be, you know, unlawful or unconstitutional, immoral or or or, uh, or unethical. If you have those types of concerns, now it's completely different. Now you actually have an obligation to bring awareness to the fact that you may have received an unlawful order so that it can be properly addressed, you, you, you have an obligation, and the military teaches you that you have that obligation. So, is the military an institution of orders? Yes, of course. Are you expected to follow orders? Yes, of course. Are there, in some circumstances, exceptions to that? Yes, there are. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Let me ask you this, um, did, uh, would, you served uh, during the Trump administration and you were probably a lieutenant colonel, uh, major lieutenant colonel uh, that entire time. Talk about uh, your perception of uh, the military under uh, Trump as the commander in chief. Was there a problem?
0: Um, I think the military was typically, uh, as as an institution collectively, happier under the Trump administration than now, for sure. Um, I mean, I believe that whatever has happened in the last couple of years, in terms of how long this has been planned or whatever, I think things have gotten extremely bad um, very, very rapidly. So was the military stronger and was the military uh, generally happier in terms of people's, maybe their sense of fulfillment and the, uh, the sense that they were being supported by their leaders was all that much better under, under president Trump. Yes. Now I personally have a lot of issues with president Trump too. Um, I, I certainly do. But, um, but to your question, if I have to answer honestly, then yeah, of course I do believe that it was a stronger force under president Trump than president Biden.
2: Well, uh, did you see, uh, a change in, uh, I guess what I would call the level of commitment, uh, under Trump versus Obama, because, you know, under Obama, I saw some things that, uh, really didn't, uh, feel right about what he was doing to the military. Was that, uh, the sense, uh, for people who were serving on active duty at the time?
0: Uh, I think it was, but I will tell you that I probably didn't make those connections till later. So I, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. So I would have been a a younger, you know, more junior officer um, at that time. But I will tell you one specific connection that I kind of made later. Um, So you could feel that there was something going on at the political level uh, under President Obama. But like I said, when you're a lieutenant or a captain, you kind of have your nose to the grind, so on, and you're focused more on what you're doing. But I mean, I still had my political opinions and I still was generally aware just as a consumer of news and information as to what was going on, for sure. Um, but in terms of what touched me on a daily basis, you could kind of feel a little bit more insulated from that. But there is one thing uh, that I knew about that had happened, but but kind of I made the connections in my mind years later, and that was the uh the purge of some of the general officer ranks that largely happened under President Obama that to some degree were likely setting the stage for what would actually come out, you know, a couple of years later mm-hmm.
2: yeah, now that that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, when you want to weaken an organization, the best way to do it is to force those that you don't like out of that organization. And, uh, you know, uh, General Arbuckle talked about how the green agenda is now part of the military. Well, I've been dealing with that green agenda for a long time. I'm one of probably a dozen people in the United States uh, considered a real expert on UN agenda 21, 2030. Uh, I've done programs on it for the last 20 years, and one of the things that I saw, I was involved with uh, forestry and different programs around Montana, and what I saw happening was that they would put the political pressure on people that would force the people who didn't agree with their programs to uh, retire, maybe retire early or to retire And they made that the way that they basically, it was like a reduction in force, only it was only taking out the people that you didn't like uh, that were against your agenda. And they've done a terrific job with that because now you go to the Forest Service today. And 75% of the people in the Forest Service are completely bought onto this green agenda crap, where uh, 20 years ago, it might have been 5%. Mm-hmm.
3: So, yeah, well, Joe, just an...
2: I'm, I'm yeah. glad to see you back. You locked up on us, but I'm glad to see you back. Go ahead sure and continue did. your
3: thoughts. Yeah, I sure did uh, lock up. Sorry about that. Um Yeah, on your green agenda example there, that's just an example of infiltrating an institution and taking it over. I mean, that's the end result of it. Um, To to, uh, Brad's point, I caught that as I came back on, uh, reference the purge and stuff. That's been talked about a lot. Um, Let's just take a hypothetical example. Let's say you've got a vacancy at the very top of the Department of Defense for three or four-star to go into it. You think that any, let's say four star in this example, who said openly that I don't believe in DEI, I want to concentrate on readiness only in this job, do you think they'd be selected? Of course not. And so that's just, that's the the way it works in a political system. And uh, that's how it's done basically. I I don't think that's uh, a factor down lower in the ranks, but once you get up to these very, very senior positions, Supporting these political agendas certainly is a factor and creating the environment where people understand that that's a factor is also part of it. Um, <clears throat> so that's my thought on that particular point. Uh, I'd like to come back if I can. I was connecting dots, <coughs> excuse me when I got cut off <coughs> about the linkage between this, uh, the Marxist overall phlox- philosophy, DEI and, uh, diversity and, and uh, inclusion, and I made the point that we're already in a very, very inclusive and diverse organization. But new on the scene is this term equity, and that's extremely dangerous, and most people don't understand that. You know, we have been, as I said, a system, an institution that judges people based on and provides opportunities based on equality. Equity is totally different. Equity is after equal outcomes. Mm -hmm. not equal opportunities. And in order to have equal outcomes among different identity groups, you have to lower the standards down to the lowest common denominator in order to get that equal outcome. And what happens then when you lower standards? Well, you lower performance. And when you lower performance, let's take in a combat situation, then that could could cause uh, the loss of a battle or even worse. Because performance is what matters in that sort of an environment, and that's what we train to do is fight, fight, and win. So that's connecting some dots between this equity stuff and uh, lowering standards, lowering performance, and lowering outcomes. Okay. It's it's very, very dangerous.
2: I agree, it is, and we we can use a perfect example. Um, and incidentally, I think uh, the United States of America. Is the most uh, racially open and fair and diverse culture in the world. Without all this nonsense, we were there. We were there twenty-five, thirty years ago. We don't need uh, this Marxist claptrap to uh, to try to you know make us more diverse. That's just nonsense. Um, we, we were a diverse culture anyway. But I'll use an example that you probably are aware of. I, I, I would bet both you gentlemen are, and that's South Africa. Uh, under the uh, white uh, apartheid government, there were problems. There's no question about it. But at the time that uh, uh, South Africa turned the government over to the, uh, 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 the communists, basically, Uh, to Mandela and uh, the ANC, the African National Congress, Um, they, at that time, they were 14 in the world in per capita income. Now they're down in the 50s. And uh, it went from having the most uh, technically advanced infrastructure in all of Africa if not one of the best in the world, and that included uh, power. It included uh, uh, electrical grid and all the uh, things that make a great economy great. Uh, Now they have rolling brownouts that go for literally days at a time, and they're actually, uh, the people that are in charge of the electrical grid in South Africa uh, are on the side making deals, selling power, to other countries around South Africa, and the South Africans don't have enough power to run their own economy. This is the kind of crap that goes on when you tar- start talking equity and in, instead of uh, you know actual uh, uh, merit in a system.
3: That's for certain then. You can take that a step further into socialism and the combination of socialism and, and uh, Marxism, they've been a failure across the globe, wherever they've been tried, and they still are today in places like North Korea and Cuba, and Venezuela, and so forth. But yet we're pushing that here in our own country. And an example I like to use, which tends to get attention and kind of drives a point home, it's, and it's a, it's a gut punch for me, and I think all of you too, and many of your listeners, and that is when you go back in our, our history, our country's history, Right after World War II, a Cold War developed, and uh, that was around 1949, I think, up until about uh, officially ended, after the Berlin Wall fell in 89, so it's probably around 91. And during that time, uh, we were, we were <clears throat> again, excuse me, fighting against the uh, Soviet Union, the, the, the communist government. Okay, so fast forward, and what happens in Korea? We deploy there, and who were we fighting in Korea? We're fighting the communist, uh, uh, North Koreans, and the Communist Chinese. And we lost about 37,000 KIAs there, plus wounded American troops. And then 10 years later, we went to Vietnam. Who were we fighting there? We're fighting the Communist Viet Cong, the Communist North Vietnamese, supported by the Communist Chinese. And we lost over 58,000 brave and loyal Americans killed. So between those two wars, we've lost a total of about 95,000 of our military members killed fighting uh, Marxist and communist, and now, now today, and this is a point uh, that very same ideology is controlling our government and mm-hmm. through DEI now our military. That's really hard to take when we look back on fighting against that and the losses we've taken. That was against a foreign threat. Now that threat's domestic.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely,
2: Brad. Um we're, you were talking about how, uh, the military's changed. Talk about how, uh, how it changed after, uh, the residential selection of, uh, 2020.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I was in, um, so at that time I was in Kansas, I was at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. I was going through a, um, a year long course called at what is called the school of advanced military studies. So I was there, um, as the, as, as that took place. And then later on in the following summer, the summer of 2021, that's when I moved to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and of course took uh took battalion command. But as all this is going on, of course you have the backdrop of COVID, which means you have, lockdowns that are going on. You have the masking that is going on. uh, You've got travel restrictions going on, and this is affecting a lot of people across the country and the military is not immune to that. So I would say you have a lot of people in the military at this, at this time who are questioning like many Americans, the election results. So if you are a young service member and you now are getting really fed up with what's going on with just everything to have to do with COVID. And you feel like there's something more to that story and the the way that your freedoms are being eroded. And then now also you really feel like there are some uh, significant problems with elections. I mean, this is a lot for somebody to be able to handle if you're a relatively young service member, but let's say you're a relatively young service member that has a deployment or two under your belt too. So, you know, you say, hey, you know, I've been in, you know, you know, whatever branch of service it might be for, you know, six or eight years. I've deployed, you know, one or two times. I have been serving my country, but now I look at what's going on uh, around me in the country. And, and, you know, and I'm asking myself, well, uh, what what exactly am I fighting for? Like, what what is going on? So you had a lot of young soldiers who are starting to ask themselves some, some pretty tough questions. I mean, they are individuals who are, um, I would almost say psychologically, uh, they're, they're having like, a, like an existential crisis. And I know that sounds, you know, like, like, uh, maybe overly hyperbolic, but it's not necessarily, you have some people who I would say their worldview is being significantly challenged in kind of this 2020, 2021, you know, even up to now. Because they, and again, if we're speaking about service members, they came into the service um, with one perception in their mind as to what they thought America was. And therefore, a very clear perception in their mind as to what they felt like they were achieving or what they felt like they were a part of in joining the military and in deploying, et cetera. So then what happens when some of those perceptions are being you know, significantly challenged? um i mean that's a struggle so mm-hmm. like for me as a commander you know i'm in a weird situation because i'm getting pulled in two directions because technically as a commander once the mandate has come into effect i'm supposed to be giving out orders to my troops to uh go take the shots but at the same time you know i'm a i'm a resistor myself so i mean it was a i mean it was a wild time to be to be in command and i even um just talking about the COVID thing, uh, because I think that you've you've got what's going on with, you know, in the white house and what's going on with the election or the selection, as you called it, and you've got COVID. I mean, any one of those in isolation would be a lot to deal with. um, If you had a worldview that is now being significantly challenged, but if both of those are happening at the same time as they were and you're kind of not mentally prepared for that, it it would be a lot to take, you know, in in my own case, um, I had already been asking some pretty significant questions as to where our country was and kind of some historical narratives that I had already started to question as far back as probably about 2007. So I was, I, I would say, um, a little bit more prepared to, to ask some pretty serious questions at the very beginning of, um, of COVID. And then also the, you know, the election that I thought was a, was a farce from the very beginning. Um, But a lot of people were not necessarily prepared for that. And so they, they did find themselves struggling to wrap their minds around that. So now as a battalion commander, and this is specific to the, to the COVID thing um, in August. So the, uh, the DOD vaccine mandate was implemented on August 24th, the day after the FDA supposedly, you know, but not really, but supposedly had uh, had authorized, you know, the Pfizer vaccine. Now we know that that was a huge bait and switch with the community or community labeled products, but that was the narrative that happened on August 23rd. One day later, the secretary of defense, you know, signs the memo and the mandate is in effect. Well, in the month of August, but prior to that, so early August, the writing is clearly on the wall. I had started to meet with my unvaccinated soldiers. And this was not some sort of coup that I was trying to throw. In fact, I even told my direct superior, the brigade commander, that I was doing it. Um, But I would meet with these soldiers in small groups. So by company, you know, in my battalion, I had seven companies. So the unvaccinated soldiers of, you know, Alpha Company, I might meet with today and tomorrow with the unvaccinated soldiers from uh, Bravo Company. But I would meet with them and I would tell them, I'm not meeting with you because I am also unvaccinated. Now I am, you guys all know that, but that's not necessarily why I'm meeting with you. I'm meeting with you as your battalion commander. And I am just telling you whatever you're going to do, whatever decision you're going to make, just think about it now and make the decision. Now I am not here to tell you to take the shot. I am not here to tell you not to take the shot. That is your decision But any day now, this mandate may be implemented and whatever you're going to do, you got to start thinking about it right now. So if you're married and you got a family, you got to be having these conversations with your spouse. And if you decide that you're not going to take the shot, you got to start putting together a plan for what you're going to do after the military, because you may not be in the military much longer. So whatever you're going to do, you know, have a plan. So anyway, I share that because um, these are the types of conversations that I was having with my with my soldiers in early August, in anticipation of this mandate, and one of the things that I would tell the soldiers, because I mean they, they all pretty much knew my my uh, my stance on it, um, but but I but I would never. But what I would tell them was, if you want to know my stance or what I'm going to do, I will tell you. But you got to come talk to me. You know, in my office. You know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still going to maintain the professionalism of being a a, a commander here. I'm not going to order you to take the shot, even once it's mandatory. I'm not going to do that. I will disobey that order. But, you know, if you want to come talk to me about my own opinion or, you know, you got to come come see me in my office. And I had soldiers that would uh, that would do that. And, you know, that's um, that's no small feat for a young 20 year old private, you know, to go visit the uh, the battalion commander. You know, I mean, you know, privates don't just. um of their own accord, typically go visit the battalion commander, even for something good, right? So, I mean, I like to think of myself as an approachable guy, but still. So, it's my point in sharing that is, um, it's no small feat for a young private to go seek out the battalion commander and uh, and go talk to him behind closed doors. But some, but 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 some of these young soldiers did, and I had young soldiers in my office in tears because they're like, "Sir, I, I do not want to take this shot," and I really like the army. And I thought this is what I was going to do with my life. Uh, Or I had another soldier who said, my older brother has taken the shot and was almost immediately injured. I don't want to take the shot. I mean, these are the stories that I'm hearing from, you know, 19, 20, 21 year old privates that are coming and talking to me one-on-one behind closed doors. And I'm in a situation where I totally agree with them, but I can't help them. There's not much that I can do because I can't absolve them of the the order that's about to come down to mandate the shots. I can't even absolve myself from it. You know? So, I mean, I felt powerless. They felt powerless, just a, an awkward time to be a commander. But at the same time, I would like to think that, um, if nothing else, even though I ended up getting fired over it, that if nothing else, I, uh, I demonstrated through my example to my soldiers that you do not have to do this. Now that doesn't mean there will not be consequences. That does not mean that those consequences might not necessarily be somewhat severe, but you do not have to go along with this. There is another option, even if it's, um, you know, going to come with its own challenges, like potentially losing your job, et cetera. Anyway, that was a very long meandering answer to your, uh, to your question that originally was about the election. I apologize for
2: that. (laughs) No, 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 no. I, I, I kind (laughs) of wanted that kind of a conversation. Uh, General Arbuckle, I, Um, you mentioned that you're trying to put together, uh, through your groups, a way of people like Brad Miller, who, who was literally forced out of the military within a matter of months of being able to officially retire, uh, and, and being forced out. If there are people who want to get back into the military, under what circumstance, uh, Could that possibly happen? And frankly, I I almost know that you're going to say it's going to happen when we have a a new president and a new administration, but I'll let you answer that.
3: That's a pretty good start for an answer there, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) uh, uh, Within STARS, uh, like I put together, excuse me, put together a uh, matrix of remedies and we pushed this, um, well, about a year ago and they still pertain to some degree, if we can get the right political backing. Um, and br- Brad can comment on this first thing, but one, one size does not fit all uh, regarding those 8,100, 8,200 that were forced out uh, under the uh, VAX mandate. Yes, there's one group that was forced out that could be offered a chance to come back in the military under certain circumstances such as uh, expunging their records of any negative personal actions that might have been taken while they're on active duty, letters of reprimand, that sort of thing, and offer them a chance to come back to a unit of their choice is what we proposed instead of going back to the unit they came from because the environment there may not be all that good. Um, And provide travel and all that sort of thing. But frankly, I don't think at this point so much time has passed that there's going to be many that will want to come back in they they moved on with their lives, in, in my view. And, and Brad's uh, shaking his head on that. So I think that's true. But there's other categories. Here's those that stayed on active duty <clears throat> and uh, did not want to take the, the Vax. And then the mandate was lifted. They're still there. Well, what about them? Well, during that period of time, some negative personal actions happened to them, which should be expunged from their records. Maybe they got, as I said, negative counseling statements, letter of reprimands. Their schoolings might have been delayed. They might have been delayed on promotions or even movements. And so, those things should be made right for those people that remained on active duty. And oh, by the way, let me come back to the first group that's still out. And uh, anybody that got out that had a religious exemption in a request for religious exemption was denied and and got out, kicked out, uh, they should have an honorable discharge. There were a high number of those people that got general discharges under honorable conditions. And that's one, a slap in the face mm-hmm. for what they did because they're standing upon religious grounds of First Amendment rights. And the second <clears throat> point is they lose any uh, GI benefit, GI bill benefits from that general discharge categorization. And so far, that has not happened. They're leaving that to the individual service member to try to go back to this very lengthy process through the correction military records to get their discharges upgraded and that will take years frankly <clears throat> and then we have a category of those that uh, um, have gotten out and they've uh, been harmed by the vaccine got some kind of a medical condition that should be uh, treated by the va and we have suggested to the congressional reps we've had in the past that there ought to be an automatic um, uh, presumption of harm coming from the vax if they've got one of those injuries associated with it, like myocarditis or pericarditis or um, various cancers, etc. That's the only right thing to do, and include them, like under an Agent Orange program or the PACT thing, and now the VAS for those that have been harmed. And so, those are the kind of remedies that we've been pushing. Um, and uh, it will take strong congressional action to make that happen. Bottom line, and I don't see it. I mean there've been members of Congress and senators that had been proposing it but is there an overwhelming interest uh, initiative and work happening in that direction congressional I don't see it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pretty bad sad, well, sad.
2: it it is sad but um something that you mentioned you had uh, sent uh uh this letter to uh uh McCarthy to Kevin McCarthy when he was the speaker of the house and um I think I could be wrong on this one, but I really think that uh, uh, Mike Johnson is going to be a a breath of fresh air, and he's going to be probably the best alternative that could have happened uh, under the circumstances to take over that uh, speaker position in the House. And I think maybe things will start to happen now with him in that role.
3: Yes, and I I agree with your uh, view of him, Uh, as you said, a breath of fresh air. Uh, Coming back to the letter, just for everybody's information, that was uh, not done by STARS, although it was coordinated a little bit that way. It was done through uh, my role as uh, with Flag Officers for America. Uh, We put together a letter, my little team of three, and sent it out to um, uh, an email list of retired generals and admirals and asked them to sign it. It's addressed, as you said, to the Speaker of the House and McCarthy. Also, Jeffries, uh, uh, as, as a leader on the Democrat side, and out of courtesy, obviously, to do it the right way. And also to... Uh,
2: uh, yeah, I'm uh, uh, putting yeah, that letter up.
3: Yeah, sorry, I thought I lost you again. Uh, <laughs> also, as you see there, to Mike Rogers, who's uh, chairman of the Armed Service Committee, and then the guy responsible for the uh, appropriations. And the letter basically said, we, w- we would appreciate you and your congressional roles, your responsibility and authority to raise and support armies and provide for and maintain navies to remove all aspects of CRT and DEI uh, out of the military in the next budget. And so uh, then there's a lot of justification, as you can see in the letter, <clears throat> for that position. 100 and let's see, 86 retired flag officers signed that letter. and. And uh, it, it was delivered to their offices uh, personally, so they got it. And uh, again, the uh, the theme of the thing to take DEI, which I mentioned earlier, out of the military was picked up in the house. And there were a lot of good things that went over to the conference committee to do that very thing. Uh, and it's still there in conference as far as I know. And as I mentioned also before, I'm certain it will be uh, watered down with the Senate approach on this thing. and But we do think there might be a couple of good things that will go to the president uh, Yeah, uh, in, in the final product, <clears throat> such as requiring all the services com- uh, academies to continue using the standardized test scores as part of their admission criteria for cadets, which has been under fire. Yeah, you're going through the names right there. As you can see, there's a representation of all kinds of ranks in all services, to include the United States Coast Guard. Uh, we're shy on four stars, though, and that's been a disappointment for me. We've only gotten maybe over the course of uh, three, three, four, five letters, uh, four or five different uh, four stars to sign. Uh, but now, yeah, I was re-
0: actually just about to ask you that question. Yeah, if you if you had any four stars, but okay. Yeah, and and. <clears throat> As I said, it's been a
3: disappointment. What I found is that a lot of the four stars are engaged in uh, board positions that pay money in different corporations, or they might just have a flat out paying job in these corporations. And uh, there's reluctance to sign letters like this because it might jeopardize uh, their positions in those corporations, that's one reason. Another is uh, some just don't wanna get involved, uh, or they may disagree with the contents of the letter. That was particularly true coming back to an earlier conversation in a letter we put together in August of 2021 uh, when the Afghanistan debacle, and that's a term that we coined in the letter, was occurring. The letter was uh, an open letter asking for the resignation of the Secretary of Defense, Austin, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Milley, to resign over their role in that debacle because they are the President's uh, chief military advisors and uh, The point we made was that they should have given their best military advice to the president not to uh, push that date for that operation withdrawal up to 31 August, but rather do it on an event schedule instead of a a date on the calendar. And if they did not do that, the second point was, uh, if the president said, I've heard what you had to say, but we're gonna go ahead and do it. At that point, they had two choices One was to salute and march off and execute, or the other was to resign and protest. The point in our letter was they should have resigned, and that's why we're calling for their signature, their their resignations in the letter. And uh, that got a lot of attention, obviously, back in August of 21. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, and now look at what we're dealing with there. Um, You know, the $80 billion worth of equipment that uh, got left in Afghanistan, and now, uh, it's being used uh, against us and our allies in the Middle East. So, you know, if that isn't treason, I don't know what is.
3: <laughs> right. <clears throat> well, the consequence we put in the letter also, not only that, which are bad enough, as you, as you said, but rightfully so, Dan, we also pointed out it's going to embolden our enemies, and we specifically listed uh, Russia, CCP, Xi, China, uh, North Korea, and Iran, and in, general, and in general, terrorists of all of all types. And that's exactly what's happened today. That's what we see playing out on the world stage. And that was predictable back in August of 21. The other thing we said was it's gonna cause our allies not to trust us anymore. And that has certainly occurred. And uh, <laughs> there's some evidence of that with Israel today. So this thing had catastrophic consequences, the decision to basically leave American equipment, American people behind, American citizens behind in the hands of a mortal enemy and uh, basically just walk away from it when that could have been avoided. And that's why we, we put that letter together. And uh, um, the consequences will reverberate from that decision, I think, for at least the next 10 years and maybe more.
2: Mm-hmm. I agree. And uh, what what we've done morally, and this is the part that, I think is so incredibly important. It's morally, but it's a spiritual thing as well. It's a spiritual battle. And what we have done has been such an incredible disappointment to, uh, well, to us as Christians, as uh, believers in Christ, as believers in a supreme being, and the fact that we've allowed this crap to go on is um, a very poor statement of uh, you know what our real value as a republic is.
3: Right. <clears throat> I, I agree with you on that. And uh, I've said many times among uh, my circles and whatnot that, as you pointed out, when you really boil this thing down, what we're up against today with what's happening to our country, and the forces of socialism and Marxism basically challenging our constitutional republic, the cultural war that's gone along with it, it is at its root basis a, a fight of good versus evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's where we're at in this thing.
2: Yeah. And and I think, uh, frankly, we've been losing that battle, but it's time to turn that around. That's what I'd like to use maybe the last uh, 15 minutes of this program to talk about. Uh, Brad, you, you, you are doing other things. You've moved on in your life. You're doing other things. I want to I want to talk about, I think we are winning this battle. I think we have turned, uh, we've gone past the tipping point. We have these bastards on a run and that's all I want to call them. Uh, this global nightmare, these people that are doing this stuff, uh, I think we've got them on the run. Let's talk about what we can do to make this uh, make this happen—to you know, to get our country back, to win back our republic, and to get uh, people to wake up to the reality that we're living in.
0: Yeah, well, I would say that there are some positive things that are happening. Um, so, if we just use the the two examples that you and I were talking about a couple minutes ago and if you want to throw in the afghanistan debacle that's that that's a third one that people are realizing that hey th- these things are you know just they're, they're all a huge mess but um it, i don't know very many people that still subscribe to the the original narrative that we were uh, we were offered for covid even people who may have been true believers in the beginning many of them have woken up to hey this was this was not what they told us Now, with the election, even people that I know that have uh, have long considered themselves Democrats and even some of them. Now, there are plenty of people who consider themselves Democrats that did not vote for uh, Joe Biden, even among some that did. uh, Even within that population, there are many who, you know, three years into his presidency have said that this administration is is not you know, functioning in any way whatsoever. So my point in sharing that is that there are people who over the last couple of years have started to realize that something is majorly wrong in our country and that we have massively departed from any semblance of the Republic that we were founded as. And that's a good thing. We need people to, to wake up. And, uh, you know, we all know from history that we're not looking necessarily for the, the, the uh, 50% plus 1 we don't need that kind of a majority what we do need of course is a sizable loud active minority that's what we need and then the other people who won't necessarily have the courage to to actually be active and and stand up and do what's right we just need them to at least not you know actively oppose us and so even if there is kind of that kind of that group in the middle that's not actively opposing us to some degree you know that's that's manageable, but I do see just in my interactions with a lot of people, people who, um, were there are people who believe very differently than they believed just two two to three years ago, and I think it's important to note that, you know, not everyone can be a trailblazer, not everyone is, um, you know, just to put it in in kind of the uh, the uh, the army army parlance, you know, when you're, uh, when you're on patrol and you got to break brush through the woods, not everybody can walk point. Not everybody's going to be able to do that, you know? So you got your people who, um, two years ago, three years ago, if we just put it in that timeframe, uh, they were walking point. They were some of the ones who were out there initially, very, very, very courageous, but we got other people who now are starting to kind of come through, realize what's going on and want to actively help. And I think to our credit, our side is embracing those individuals, you know? And I think, Mm -hmm. I think that's important.
2: Yeah, I absolutely agree. And um, it's, it's funny. We've had people like Steven friend uh, the FBI agent who uh basically testified before the uh House Special Committee on the Weaponization of Government he's been on this program a couple of times uh guys like that that are right in the belly of the beast that are willing to break ranks and and stand up and be counted those are the real patriots and like you say we've got to support them we've got to do whatever we have to do to support them and you're one of those as well Brad
0: well, thank you Dan
2: well we we need to uh we need to wake up to the reality of the world we're facing. People don't get it, but uh Joe, you've mentioned uh you know how we've slid into the system. I've been studying this uh since I was thirteen years old. I actually had my first epiphany uh during the Kennedy assassination. When they trotted out a six-five or Carcano with a four-dollar scope that wasn't even mounted correctly, and said that uh, Oswald got off three three shots, accurate shots in two seconds, uh, I, I mean I was 13 years old and I knew better than that. Uh, oh. <laughs> you know the least they could have done is is got you know trotted out an M1 Garand with a sniper scope on it. But no, they had to use a, a $3 weapon with a $4 scope and say that's what did it. Uh, <laughs> my world has been upside down ever since. But what, what we need to do is we need to get more people understanding just exactly how, uh, how near completion their plan is and how we need to really stand up and loudly fight it now, but we can win this battle. There's no question, we can win it. With that, as you said, Brad, that vocal active minority, we can do it.
3: I, uh, <clears throat> I think so, but here's the thing. You gotta control the narrative. And this comes back to the earlier point about the power of the media, particularly social media today. And uh, getting the word out is so, so important to the population because that's one of the reasons we're in the situation we are today. This infiltration of our institutions we've been talking about since the 1960s, really, uh, has been slow, gradual. It's uh, Basically, uh, that was the strategy. And people have been complacent. They've been sitting back on their couches, happy with their everyday lives for the most part not seeing what's going on around them and nobody telling them in terms of the communication capabilities well of what was happening so one of the encouraging things today to me dan is that media outlets like yours and shows like yours conservative shows are popping up all over and talking about these various points and that's how you counter this mainstream and social media thing i think is just get that going even more and look at Elon, Elon Musk. I think that guy struck a bro, blow for freedom when he bought uh, on Twitter and now it's called X because his reason for doing that, as we know, he said, basically, I don't like censorship. Mm-hmm. I want uh, I want the word to get out to people, the truth to get out to people. And that was a giant step forward. But more of that is needed. People have to be informed on what is really happening because the large part of the population, my point is, is not informed and what they do know is wrong.
2: Yeah, that's true enough. But um, I, I think we we really, uh, I'm amazed how many people have started following alternative media like ours. Uh, we, we've been doing, uh, I've been doing this now for eight years and I have to tell you, I am absolutely astounded by the number of people who five years ago uh, thought we were a bunch of fruitcakes for even talking about this stuff, who now not only uh, actually agree with us, but they call us for advice. <laughs> That's pretty cool. You know, when, when you, they start calling you and asking you, what, what would you do? That tells me we've turned a corner. Mainstream media is not going to change. Uh, The way to put it out of business is to not support it. People need to shut off their televisions, shut off their uh, following mainstream news, and start looking to alternative media for news.
3: Absolutely. And then, uh, you know, I came out of my retirement foxhole, gosh. (laughs) Uh, about three or four years ago to get engaged too and do what I can do. And uh, I mean, it comes down to people like us and others uh, doing everything we can do within our spheres of influence to spread the word about what's happening to our country and what to do about it. And if you don't mind, I'll plug stars on that a second. I would invite everybody, please, to go to our website. It's U S. And there's a ton of information, good information on there. It's kept current. Our webmaster, interestingly enough, is was a, a CIA counterintelligence agent for 24 years. And she is absolutely fantastic in keeping that site going. Um, you can sign up for our newsletters on there. They're free. There's no obligation, no cost. It's a, it, it's a source of information, a great source of information. And that's, a, that's one way we're spreading the word within uh, what I'm doing also. Mm-hmm.
2: well we've got a responsibility
3: can you give that happen. website again uh general sure certainly it's uh s-t-a dot US, us got it thank you
2: mm-hmm. we'll advertise that for sure um please we, we uh we are making a difference and uh frankly Uh, Our responsibility is to get uh, one person to listen to us, and then that person has a responsibility to get one person. If we are to do that, and if we're successful at that, eventually uh, we'll win this battle. But, uh, you know, frankly, we need to move faster than that. Brad, what are you doing uh, to... maybe uh what are you doing to try to get people to wake up to the reality we're living under
0: sure yeah there's some organizations that i've been working with as well um and i've also been trying to just in my own writings and some videos that i've started to make i've started to kind of put the word out there um with my own story not because my story is more important than anybody else's it just happens to be the one that i'm the most familiar with because it happened to me right but um if people want to follow some of the stuff that I write, they can go to my Substack, which is just my name, bradmiller10.substack.com, and they can find uh some of the stuff that I write. So again, that's just my name, bradmiller10.substack.com. And then also um I've been doing some work with uh Children's Health Defense. If people are familiar with that, I do some volunteer work with them. They they uh, recently launched a military chapter. That's my substack right there, Ideas and Actions. So um, that's where I do some of my writing. Um, so people can go can go to that. It'll come right up. But, uh, yeah, so I, I do some volunteer work with Children's Health Defense and the recently launched military chapter. Um, and, in fact, we just recently launched a podcast for the military chapter, that is called guardians of warriors. And people can find that just by, um, by searching for, uh, military children's health defense on rumble. And then the last thing that I'll mention is I do some, uh, I do some work with IPAC edu, which is the Institute of pure and applied knowledge education, which offers courses for people who are looking to just continue their own their own education. What you see on the screen right now is just a Substack post that I made recently about that guardians of warriors podcast. But um, yeah, so I, I do some work where uh, I, I get together with other instructors that want to teach people who are interested in continuing their own education, just about whatever. I and mean, we know that the world of academia has been just as uh, just as corrupted as the military or other institutions, but there are people out there that are curious want to learn, keep themselves educated. And so what we do at IPAC edu, which people can find just at IPAK edu.org is we take people who are curious and want to learn and help them find, you know, high quality, amazing instructors that are there to, uh, to provide education.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that is a great way to do it. We are educators in, uh, the- we you know we call it uh my program i call it connecting the dots but you know the fact is is we realize when we get together with groups like uh, gentlemen like yourselves that all these dots connect this isn't something that there's some isolated thing that happened and then there's another isolated thing that happened and they're all coincidental i don't think any of this is coincidental i think all of it is part of a much bigger program, a much bigger plan. And frankly, the more that we can throw our wrenches in the gears, the better off we'll be because we'll stop this process. The reason that we've been losing the battle up to this point is not because we've been uh, unwilling to fight, it's because most people have been unwilling to even accept the fact that there's a fight there.
0: I completely agree.
2: Yeah. Well, um, I, I, I hope that, uh, Joe is still on. It looks like he might've dropped off, but,
0: uh yeah, uh, yeah, I think he, I think he, uh, locked up again, Dan.
2: I think he might have, uh, we'll try to get him back hopefully before the end of the show. Uh, Brad, I, uh, I appreciate what you're doing. I, I will try to get a hold of you right after the program. I've got, uh, Another venue. I'd like to see if I could try to get you on for a short, uh, a shorter program on another venue. But I will also work really hard to try to connect you uh, with as many people as I can to try to help you, uh, you know, get get coordinated with others like. Uh, General Arbuckle and and people who are really involved in this stuff is that something that interests sure. you?
0: Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. I would appreciate that absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Okay.
2: Well, that, you know, it's more important to uh, uh, connect people than it is anything else at this point. Because uh, if if we're not working with other people, then uh, we're a unit of one, and obviously you can't win battles as a unit
0: of one. Yep. That's absolutely right.
2: Yeah. Well, um, thank you for being our guest. Uh, anything else that you'd like to uh, tell our listeners before, uh, before we run out of time?
0: Yeah. I would just say, you know, you wanted to end with that, that message of hope. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, and I agree with that. You know, I think, I think it is important to have a realistic appraisal of where we are. And so sometimes that means we do have to talk about the the depth of the deception going on and kind of the the control mechanisms that are being used against us i do believe that is important but that doesn't mean that things are hopeless at all um Mm -hmm. you know you mentioned before that you know we put our faith in god and uh you know i believe that when it comes to being christians particularly christian men i mean that implies you know we're we're supposedly men of action and um that's what we're expected to do and so you know we can't lose hope um there are plenty of things plenty of reasons to be optimistic. And so, you know, we keep our, uh, our heads up and our chests out and we move forward.
2: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We are, whether we don't realize it or not, we are winning this battle. Joe, I'm glad to see you back, sir. Uh, um, w- one last word. I, I just want, we are winning this battle, aren't we? Oh, you've got to
3: unmute yourself. Yeah, thanks, sir. I got bounced up again. I definitely see pro- progress in this battle. As you say, it's a fight good versus evil. Got to keep the faith, keep charging on.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do know that we've got God on our side and that's uh, that's a big deal. And I think the reason things are getting as bad as they are right now is because the other side sees that they could lose this battle for the first time in a very long time enough people are waking up that I think we've scared the crap out of them. And I hope so because we're going to kick the crap out of them before this is all said and done. Do I get a thumbs up on that? (laughs) Okay. Gentlemen, thank you for uh, being our guests on connecting the dots. I, I will share your uh, information back and forth uh, between you. uh, Once we get off the program and I, uh, Joe, please keep the faith and keep going with your, uh, stars group, because that is a fantastic group and what you're doing is very, very important. And, uh, Brad, what you're doing, absolutely. Let's see if we can, uh, put, put a little bit of a turbo kick behind some of the things you're working on. Sounds great. righty. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, God bless America.
0: And God thank bless. you for, thank you for your service. Thank you.
1: From the lakes of Minnesota, to the hills of Tennessee. Across the plains of Texas, oh, from sea to shining sea. From Detroit down to Houston, New York to LA. Where there's pride in every American heart. And it's time we stand and say,